Well, good to see everyone who's back out this afternoon, and I trust you've had a good day. I hope you have. Looking forward to getting together um, uh, over at, the, at our house in the backyard and doing some singing, and uh, everybody, of course, that's here is welcome, and, want you ju- and I will mention just a couple of uh, logistics here. Um, you'll probably need to grab a chair if you have not brought one with you. You definitely need to grab your psalm book and take it with you because we're going to be doing some singing. And speaking of that, when you get over there, uh, I'm going to try to make it over by 15 after. I hope I will be able to. And we're going to sing for about an hour. We plan to eat about 6.15, give some folks who are going home and bringing food back, give them time to get there. We'll eat and then we'll sing till about 8 o'clock. And uh, I trust we'll all have a good time. Now, speaking of that, Tonight's lesson really has to do with that. So you may have noticed the title of the lesson. If you grabbed an outline, you surely have. But the way to a man's heart, and that may have reminded you of an old saying, adage, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And that's been quoted and fairly widely quoted for some two year, 200 years. But really no one knows who wrote the thing or who first said it. It's just one of those that kind of came uh, passed into the general populace and uh, no one had uh, had claimed had claimed to have coined the phrase but the way to a man's heart is through his stomach it has been much debated since then especially in the last century if that was the way truly to someone's heart we could go off on several tangents and I'm not really going to do that but I do want to ask a question as we're thinking about it of course we're going to get together this afternoon and we're going to do some eating and so forth so How true is this old saying? The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I want to explore that for a little bit. Because when people sit down to a meal together, I think something very special not always does happen, but it can happen. I have noticed many times that when I sit down with someone at a table, especially if we eat a meal together, and that can be at their house, my house, out at a restaurant, in some senses it really doesn't matter. But what can happen is there is a far more relaxed atmosphere. It is a relaxed setting. Uh, maybe it's, it's that that causes people to get closer sometimes when they eat a meal together. Maybe it's as simple as something very basic to all of us, a need to all of us to eat, to live. Um, maybe that it is simply that that's being shared between us. Um, Maybe it is that it lowers our guard a little bit, our inhibitions a little bit, and we perhaps share some things, we talk with each other in a way we might not, for example, at, say, the back of the building here or in a more formal setting. But it's been long noticed, and people have taken note of the fact that talks or negotiations even, or deals or whatever, that they tend to go better you know, if you will, over a meal. And so the world uses that. It's not just Christians that use it, but the world uses it at length. I want us to look a little bit in the Bible. Go with me back to the passage. Well, I say back to the passage. Ekon read for us Mark's account, but go with me to Matthew's account. If you're looking at this whole situation in Matthew 9 or in Mark 2, this is the calling of the Apostle Matthew. And what's interesting here is that Jesus... Passed by, as the text says, noticed or took note of Levi, or Matthew, as we know him better, that he was sitting and collecting taxes, which automatically put him 
As far as socially, we were talking a lot this morning about socializing and all of that, it automatically put him in an outcast group. You would not, I don't know that many people today want to sit down with tax collectors for that matter, but you would not in that day certainly sit down to a meal with a tax collector. They were considered, interestingly enough, the tax collectors were considered really traitors to their people. They worked for the Roman government. The Roman government had subjugated the Israelites, and so they were looked at as traitors. The two worst sins, as far as categorically speaking among the Jews, were to be a prostitute and to be a tax collector. And really the one was almost synonymous with the other. To be either one of those was just simply to be classified as a sinner. Now, if you're looking at Matthew 9 and you drop down to, oh, about verse 9 of Matthew 9. Oops, page over. About verse 9 of, of Matthew 9. It says, Jesus passed forth from there. He saw a man named Matthew. He was sitting collecting taxes. He said, follow me. And Matthew did. He arose and followed Jesus. It came to pass then. Jesus sat at meat in his house. He's eating a meal in his house. And just like Ekong read, a lot of publicans, tax collectors, sinners, etc. are there eating together with him and his disciples. And really not many other people because, again, you wouldn't associate with such people. The Pharisees, and I always picture this, whether this is correct or not, but I always picture them kind of standing outside the house, maybe across the street, to make sure everybody knew they weren't part of the the goings-on. But they began to question his disciples. Now, I picture that as though his disciples are kind of pulled aside. Hey, come here a minute. What about your teacher in there? Doesn't he know, you know, what he's doing? Where does he, why does he go eat with publicans or tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus answers it because he knows what they're saying. He knows what they're doing. And so Jesus answers it and he says, you know, if you're whole, if you're well, we would say today, when you're well, you don't need a doctor. The ones that need a doctor are the ones who are sick. Now, we talked this morning a little bit about socializing, a lot about it. And one of the things that I said was, you carefully choose those with whom you you socialize. But I did not go to the place where you would say, Christians should only socialize with Christians. For one, I don't believe that. But two, where I actually went was either to a group of people who can build you up, promote the good things within you, are beneficial to you, they help you, they teach you good things, or, and maybe and or, the group of people who, to whom you can give influence, that you can reach, that you can help, and in turn... If you can convert such a one, you know, just like James says at the end of the book, I mean, a lot of good, a multitude of good can come from that, and they in turn can be one of those that are so beneficial to you. When I look at Jesus here, when I look at the Pharisees here, I see the typical response of a person who is righteous and good or considers himself so and would have nothing to do with the dredge of society. When I look at Jesus, I don't see such a person. I see a person who obviously does not engage in sin. We wouldn't say that he's in there partying with all these people, with Matthew, in the sense of the worst things about partying. We wouldn't say that Jesus is joining in and getting drunk and all of these kinds of things. No, of course not. But Jesus is there as a physician. Jesus is there as someone who can help, as someone who can reach out. And there's a lot of good that can be accomplished. When you look in the New Testament... You often see Jesus doing that. 
My favorite passage, and I'd like for you to turn over there for a moment to Luke chapter 7. And I've said many times, it's my favorite passage in the Bible. And it is for a number of reasons. One, because I think it shows the true picture of Jesus that is so foreign to so many people. Jesus is asked by Simon to come eat at his house. Simon is a Pharisee. Simon apparently invites over, I would assume, some important people, special people, and they're going to have this visiting dignitary, Jesus, over to their house. And all that's fine, well, and good, except this woman comes in and interrupts the situation. The whole scene is interrupted. When this woman comes in, she is a sinner, which most likely means she's a prostitute. And she comes in and she begins to cry at Jesus' feet and wipe his feet with the hairs of her head. And you know the story there. And Simon and those that are with him, while this is going on, they're kind of conferring, I would assume whispering among themselves, or just thinking, as the text almost seems to indicate. They're all thinking the same thing. Man, what a filthy woman. And does this guy not know who it is or what kind of woman? That's one reason why I like it so much how wrong we can be about what kind of person a person is. What kind of woman it is that touches it. You know how Jesus answers that. I came into your house. You didn't treat me with common courtesy. You didn't treat me with respect. You didn't, you know, you didn't salute me. You didn't wipe my, wash my feet. You didn't humble yourself in any fashion. And here's this woman. And from the time she's come in here, and I assume she was still doing it, She's crying at his feet. She's penitent. She wants to change her life. She wants to do what's right. And that's exactly what we want to accomplish. If I sit down to meal, and I've, I've done that many times, it's very comfortable for me, and I know it is for a lot of people. So maybe somebody visits here, and I talk to them, and they're, you know, they're, let's get together. Sometimes they want to get together right here at the building. Sometimes I invite them over to the house. Sometimes I'll go down, you know, and maybe buy them a cup of coffee or tea or whatever at, at the diner, State Street. Everybody knows that place around the corner from here. And we just sit there. And I've sat there sometimes for two, three hours talking to somebody. It's very relaxed. It's comfortable. The guard lowers a little bit. And so people talk. That's what you want to accomplish. And so when you look at, at passages like this, and I could go on with that. I could look at chapter 19 and the story of Zacchaeus. And here's Zacchaeus, and he's so eager to see Jesus Today, come down, Zacchaeus, make haste, and, you know, you run to your house and get everything ready, because I'm coming to your house today, out of everybody there. And remember, he was the chief of the tax collectors in that area. I'm coming to your house, and salvation is coming to your house today. That's what you want to accomplish when you sit down to meal with someone. Now, what is it about eating with somebody else? I'm not sure what all goes into it, but I will tell you this. Go over to 1 Corinthians 11, and notice in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20, we get what is our most common term for what we did this morning with the bread and the fruit of the vine. It is called in the New Testament communion. It is most often called simply breaking of bread. It is one time called the Lord's Supper, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, 20. And this is a very special word. You just don't see this word often in the New Testament. And every other time you see it, it is when people have gathered, like Jesus did with Matthew and so forth, but when they've gathered for a feast, or they've gathered for a very special, important meal. Well, this is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 11. 
And if you go back and you dig back into this word, this particular word, and you go back, and let's say go all the way back to Homer's writings, and Homer uses the term in a very particular way, so authorities will, you know, lexicographers and so forth, will cite this example. But if you go back and you look at the use of the term, you find that it's actually a religious term. In other words, even though most of the time in the New Testament, in fact, every other time, it's just for a feast, you know, a king prepared a feast for his son, that kind of thing. But it actually was a religious word, and ancient religions, if you study them, you know, the worship of Baal and all these, you know, things we see in the Old Testament, they all had formal meals. And a lot of the goings-on that surrounded those gatherings also had a feast where an animal would perhaps be sacrificed and then eaten and all of that kind of thing. But these religions incorporated a special meal. And there was eating and there, were, there was drinking and there was a lot of other things that went on with it. But they were considered, and this is what I'm getting at, they were special because they were eating a meal and they were considered a way, a physical way, that you could have fellowship with the God that you believed in. Now stay with me for a second. You're gathering to worship Baal, okay? And you're going to sacrifice a bull to Baal, or one of the various, you know, Baal incorporates a lot of gods. But you're going to sacrifice a bull. That bull becomes special. Now it's been killed. Then it's going to be put over an open fire and roasted, is what it amounts to. And everybody is going to partake of that bull eating it. And they're going to eat and drink and do all of their religious rites and so forth. And it was a way for everybody to physically share in the sacrifice. And I mean personally involve themselves in the sacrifice to whatever God. And this seems to be common around the world. In other words, you wonder if this traces all the way back to, and you can run over there quickly, to Genesis 4, when they first began to build an altar, first began to sacrifice, first began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's no way to know that. But it is interesting that you can go to every culture around the world in different parts of the world, and people are doing virtually the same thing. They have different gods by different names, but they're all doing this. So it is also interesting, then, that our Lord did the same with us. Now, we don't sacrifice a bull to Jesus or, you know, a pig as some of the Polynesian cultures. We don't do that. But we do gather and we partake of bread and we partake of fruit of the vine and we each share in that. It is communion, which is the word for fellowship. We have fellowship of the most intimate kind. We share, just like we sang, didn't we sing the song this morning, Come Share the Lord, I believe? We share the Lord, literally. And He shares in that, according to Matthew 26 and Mark 14. So when you're looking at that, you understand that this is an intimate gathering and intimate sharing. Now why am I talking about all of that? Because this idea of sitting down to a meal, and I realize going to State Street Diner and having a hamburger is not the same as some of these pagans who would sacrifice this animal and eat of it, thinking there was they were all sharing with this God in a meal and all of that. It's not that. But perhaps some of the elements of it are the same. And that is how people are drawn together, and they're closer when they, see, they do that kind of thing. And they feel that. 
People have been polled, surveys have been taken of people who are eating together and just asking them, I mean, just like literally going in and walking around and asking them, how do you feel? Are you enjoying your meal together? That kind of thing. And listening to all of that, you understand there is something going on. And so, once you begin to study that, you begin to understand that it can really serve a great purpose to get together. That isn't lost in the New Testament. So we began to look in the New Testament and we realized there's a lot of that kind of thing going on, isn't there? Go with me to Acts 2. Surely we remember, and I'm sure all of you do remember. If you go to Acts 2, you remember that what happens the day of Pentecost is probably a Sunday. But it's the day of Pentecost, and the church begins, you know, they're convicted of Jesus and who he is, and that they killed him, and they need to obey. And so men and brethren, verse 36, as we turn down our verse 37, as we turn down to Acts 2.37, they're asking, what do we do? How do we correct this? And Peter tells them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then the Bible tells us, and I want you to pick up with me in verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word, they were baptized. And the same day there were added about 3,000 souls. I know the King James in some translations say added unto them. But they were just added. They were added to the number. Now you notice what happens here. You obey the gospel, you're automatically part of a group. You're a member of the church. Now, whether or not you go on acting like that, as we were saying this morning, whether or not you go on, you know, really trying to grow and gain from that, that's your choice. But the moment you're baptized, God, the Holy Spirit himself, adds you to the number. You are a member of the church. But it didn't end there, did it? Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and it's coming directly from Jesus. And fellowship. And that probably means the different things in which they share, like contribution and the Lord's Supper and all those kinds of things. But the breaking of bread, the breaking of the bread, that's probably the Lord's Supper, and in prayer. And then it says, and fear came upon every soul. And all the ones, you know, many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and they all, that, all that believed, verse 44, they were together and they had all things in common. And then the Bible says they even went so far as to sell what they had, and they began to part them, share what they have with others. But I want to focus on verse 46, because they're Jews. And Jews in that part of the world, just like, you know, and you, you can see it today, they still do it in certain parts of the world today, and Muslims do it, where they'll have hours of prayer and hours of worship. They took advantage of that. So they're continuing daily. With one accord in the temple. We know they met in the temple. That's where the first church, the early church, met. And they met there because it was a place where all these Jews could come together. And it was also a place where they could influence others, teach others. And they effectively do that. But you also notice it says they were continuing with one accord. This one accord, same one of those words that's used in 2 Corinthians 6 where they are in agreement and accordance. They're harmonizing, you know, that idea with one another. And they're breaking bread not just on Sundays when they take the Lord's Supper, but they're breaking bread from house to house. Now, this is how I picture it, and it may not be right, but this is how I picture it. If they're meeting daily at the temple and, you know, worshiping God, doing the things they're doing as far as praying and singing and that kind of thing, 
and they're breaking bread from house to house, then it must be what's happening is, at the hour of prayer, that would be 9 a.m., 12 noon, or 3 p.m., they're going down there and they're worshiping. And then they're breaking apart. Remember, it starts with 3,000. And verse 47 tells you that the Lord is adding to the number on a daily basis, those that are being saved. So there are literally thousands of people. Thousands of people are not coming to one person's house. Just like, you know, thousands aren't coming to my house today. There will be a few, relatively speaking, that will gather in the backyard, but you couldn't house that many. Most homes can't. And they're not doing that. They're breaking up from house to house. And they're eating their bread or eating their meals. I want you to notice what it says here. They ate their meat, their food, with gladness and singleness of heart. Some translations say simplicity of heart. And what it means is they've got a focus. They've got a purpose. Well, they've got a focus and they've got a purpose when they separate into different homes and they joyfully, happily eat a meal together. So is it important to do that? It appears to be. And commonly in the New Testament you see this. Run with me, if you will, through a few passages. Look over at Acts 16. Isn't it interesting that when you go to Philippi, this would be the first time the gospel ever went out of Asia, as far as we know, into Europe. And it, they come to the, you know, the uppermost coast of Greece here. And they go into Philippi. And they met a woman down by the riverside. Remember, of course, Lydia. And on the Sabbath, verse 13, they went down by the riverside where prayer commonly was made. And they taught this woman, Lydia, in verse 14, from the city of Thyatira. And verse 15, read this together with me. When she was baptized, and her household, her family, she begged us, saying, if, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house. Now notice what's happening there. She's apparently a Gentile woman. And most of Paul's company are Jewish men. But if you've judged me to be faithful, if I'm really a Christian, we are Christians together now. And so let's eat together. Come to my house and eat a meal. She's begging them to do that. We talked about hospitality last week. And sometimes hospitality is viewed as a chore. You know, it's just, oh boy, got to have the people over. You know, and I understand that. And a lot of times a lot of work goes into that. You know, you do a little extra cleaning. You've got to prepare a little extra food. And all those kinds of things go into that. But it's the good that comes from it. It's the benefit that comes from it. It's those things you share when you have someone in that intimate setting of your home. And the same is true when we gather together and sing. If you've, and I know most of you have, but if you've never been to one of these things, Sometimes people are surprised, you know, because we're usually in a good mood and people are laughing and it's relaxed. And it's certainly not like when someone, when TJ came up here a few moments ago and announced the song and we sang, and that's what we should do here. It's formal. It's worship. But it's far more relaxed over there. And people take note of that. And if you want to put it like this in a base way, people have fun doing those kinds of things. And you realize you begin to realize that Christianity is not just about going to church. It is about Christians coming together and beginning to live their lives. Remember Acts 2? And daily they were doing this. They were taking their meals with each other. 
you wonder how close these people were growing. I sometimes look at that passage and I think to myself, you know, if you're coming together on a daily basis and you're, you know, forming friendships and very close ties with people, it probably is a lot easier to take some prized possession down and sell it because now you've grown close to this person and you want to help this person. They had all things in common. They were together. You see all those terms used there, and I don't think it's lost on us that one of the reasons why is they're not just going to church for an hour a week on Sunday morning together. They're spending their lives together. You notice later in Acts 16, it's not just Lydia, the jailer. Now here's a Roman officer who is a jailer and he's converted. Do you remember the same thing? Verse, you know, verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be safe? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33 or 34, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all of his, immediately. And when he had brought them to his house, he set food before them. They ate a meal together. Middle of the night is the idea. Can you imagine? I, I, sometimes I think about that story, and that story is it's amazing. But can you imagine? Here is a guy who a few hours before was charged, and I mean charged with his own life, to make sure none of these prisoners went missing. And if somehow Paul or Silas or one of these guys got free, and started to run out the door, his number one duty was to sit, stick his sword right through them. Now, a few hours later, this guy, who was in that kind of charge of their lives, this guy is taking them home and putting food in front of them. Two, three in the morning. We don't know what time it is. I mean, midnight they were singing, verse 25. What, a, what an amazing story. What an amazing example of what the gospel can do for people. I wonder, a lot of times I wonder, at the conversation that would have went on that night. You know, that guy and who he was and what he represented and his future. I mean, man, he's got a prisoner in his house eating a meal. And he's supposed to be guarding this guy with his life, at the expense of his life. It is his duty to kill Paul if Paul makes it through that prison door. It's an incredible situation. And you know, you keep going through and you see it. One of the ones we discussed at our last debate, Wes and I did, in Acts 20. And I'm not going to go through this passage again, but remember, when they finished that long day of worship or that time of worship together, notice that, you know, the young man, etc., is raised from the dead. And then in verse 11, when he therefore was come up again and he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while. I don't know if you've ever eaten a meal with somebody close to you. And I suspect all of us have done this kind of thing, especially when you're younger. But you eat a meal together and you end up talking and you just talk and talk and talk. And maybe it goes all night long. I've done that. I've done that on numerous occasions. And you're sitting there with your friends and you talk and you grow closer and you learn more about each other and you get closer and you get closer. And sometimes in the middle of the night... You can share things with the other one. You know, something's been bothering me. Something that I need to talk about. Maybe you even need to confess and ask for the prayers of someone else. You know, that James 5 situation. That kind of thing can come out of just sitting down and eating together. It's powerful. And I don't know if it's because psychologically God made us this way. Some suppose that. You know, He just made us to enjoy doing this kind of thing. I mean, why is it? 
Look at the restaurant business in this country. Look at the number of people. I don't think it's just laziness that drives us to a restaurant. Do you think it is? You know? But how many of us really want to just go out and eat with somebody? Stop and think about that for a moment. What's driving so many people to do that? Some people say it's because God has made us that way. Because of the good that will come from it. Because of what you can gain from just sitting down and eating and talking and all of the kind of thing they're doing. We're going to get together in a few minutes. I didn't intend for this to be a long sermon, and so I'm going to wrap it up here shortly. We're going to get together in a few minutes. When we walk into that situation, walk next door, we bring our food, we sit down, we take a psalm book, we start singing, sometimes we laugh with each other, etc., etc. Take a look around at the people who are there. Ask yourself the question, you know, who would I like to know better? Who would I like to get a little bit closer to? Some of the people in this church, and I mean this literally, that I am the closest to. The first time I ever had one of those talks that got us closer was at one of these type get-togethers. I'm thinking of one of the ladies here, and she's been a member here the whole time I've been here. I never really knew this lady until, you know, I mean, I knew her, of course. But like so many of us, you know, we come to church, we see somebody across the room, we don't really know them. But we were at Carteret Park one Saturday, you know, in the middle of the summer. And she and I sat there and we talked. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And we walked away from that place so much closer. And over the years that have followed, you know, we've studied the Bible together, we've laughed, we've talked, we've done all of those kinds of things. And the point is, it begins with something so simple. We're getting together to eat a meal and have some recreation. That's why it's so important. That's one of the reasons why I believe in it so highly. I see Christians in the New Testament who are close enough to each other that they give everything they have for the other Christians. I see Christians in the New Testament times, and I read from history, they are so close to each other. They die for each other. Paul even mentions some of them, who sacrificed their lives for him. Him who once had killed Christians. Now Christians are sacrificing their lives for him. I see people in the New Testament who are so close to one another, they care about their fellow Christian greater than they even care for themselves. Like Edward talking about at the Lord's table this morning. Who would you give your life for? And I see that, I believe, because these Christians are willing to go way beyond just going to church together. And they're willing to socialize with each other whether that's eating or singing or all of these things that we do. It's important. It's not just a, oh, it's a get-together. Okay, I'll make the next one. You know, and I realize we all have things to do. I'm not saying that. But sometimes people will say it's not important. It's important I go to church. But it's not important that I get together with other Christians, that I spend time with other Christians. It's just not that important. It is that if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you've not obeyed the gospel and confessed your belief in Jesus that He is the Son of God, you've never made that decision that you're going to change your life and bring your life in harmony with the Lord. If you've not been baptized to have your sins washed away, you have that opportunity. 
And tonight you can make that decision to, to come to Jesus. To make that decision to be a, a child of God. And begin this very evening to grow and to grow closer to other people who are Christians. Maybe it is that you look at your life like we had this morning. People look at themselves and they say, you know, there's something I need to say. There's something I need to ask. I need to ask for the prayers of people. Not exactly where I want to be. And I think we all feel that from time to time. And this is a great opportunity for you to say, hey, pray for me. I need the prayers. Won't you please come while we're standing soon?